Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Deborah Silverstein, Associate Professor of Critical Care at University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Silverstein, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. What I was going to ask you about today and interview you on were all the scary acronyms of veterinary critical care, MODS, SIRS, sepsis, and septic shock. And I was just wondering if you could explain, I know you see a lot of critically ill patients at Penn, but if you could explain what the classic case example of what SIRS looks like and then follow up with some definitions, that'd be super helpful. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely something that people in all types of practice see. It doesn't have to be just an ER or an ICU, but many animals that present to general practitioners also can have evidence of systemic inflammation. And it can be something as simple as a very hyperdynamic animal, which means they clearly have stimulation of catecholamines as well as their immune system, which in a dog is different than in a cat. But the classic signs in a dog are going to be very red mucous membranes, very bounding pulses. They often are febrile, tachycardic, and tachypnic. And they usually have some degree of mental dullness. They may have diarrhea. They're often lethargic. They don't have a very good appetite. And they may or may not have a history that includes something like vomiting and diarrhea. These patients on a hot summer day may meet the general criteria for SIRS, which include aberrations in temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and white cells. And in order for a dog to really be included as a SIRS patient, they need to have two out of four of those abnormalities. So a change in temperature, heart rate, respiratory, white cells, or left shifting. If two out of those abnormalities are present, they would qualify so the, the sensitivity for these criteria is not very good, but the specificity is. So if there's a high suspicion, we generally recommend that you take that seriously and make sure the animal isn't suffering from some degree of systemic inflammation or infection. In cats, the, the presentation is often very different. They skip that classic hyperdynamic phase of SIRS and go right to a more hypodynamic phase where they often have pale mucous membranes and very weak pulses. They may still be tachycardic and tachypnic, but they don't have the classic vasodilatory appearance. So sometimes they're a little more difficult to detect, but they are clearly very sick and they may not only have increases in heart rate, but also decreases in heart rate, which is kind of a cat-specific finding for cats that are in more severe states of illness. And again, if they can get three out of those five criteria with abnormalities, again, in PPR, white cells, and bands, then they can be classified as a SIRS patient. SIRS stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, which is really defined as clinical manifestations of systemic inflammation, which can result from either infectious or non-infectious causes. Some of the more common non-infectious causes might be things like heat stroke or pancreatitis, trauma, any type of immune-mediated disease, or even neoplasia where some of the infectious diseases commonly might be bacterial, viral, maybe even fungal or protozoal that also stimulate this widespread inflammatory response. So sepsis is merely defined as the clinical manifestation of SIRS due to an underlying pathogenic organism. So that does not include just plain bacteremia, which might be cleared by the immune system without ever causing those systemic signs and the classic changes in vital signs and white blood cell counts, 
but really they have SIRS. They have more of the, the previous abnormalities that I defined. There's also terminology that includes severe sepsis and septic shock, which are progressively worsening conditions associated with sepsis. And severe sepsis is sepsis with associated SIRS that has one or more of the following abnormalities. They can be arterial hypotension, organ dysfunction, and or hypoperfusion, such as hyperlactatemia or maybe oliguria. Septic shock is seen in patients that have been intravascularly volume resuscitated. So they've been treated with intravenous fluids to treat underlying suspected sepsis, but they still have circulatory failure and persistent arterial hypotension. So that's a patient that is not easily resuscitated due to the severity of their sepsis. And then in order for a patient to be classified as having MODS, which is multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, that means that at least two major organ systems have been affected by the systemic inflammatory response that they have. And some of the more common organs that are affected might include the gastrointestinal tract with severe diarrhea and or vomiting. Many of them will also have pulmonary abnormalities, or maybe they'll develop changes in their coagulation status. The heart can be affected with decreased contractility as well as arrhythmias. Some of these animals will even develop hepatic dysfunction, which we see by a decrease in albumin concentration, decreased clotting factor synthesis, and maybe even mild icterus. The kidneys are very commonly affected in people, a little less so in animals, but acute kidney injury is recognized as a, an organ of insult with sepsis and or SIRS. And the nervous system leading to seizures or encephalopathy. Another good abbreviation is ARDS, which is Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, which is also one of the organs that might fail in these patients, leading to vascular leak of the pulmonary vessels and a rather acute and often severe pulmonary interstitial disease and hypoxemia. More recently, we've recognized abnormalities in the microcirculation, so the capillaries that are giving the oxygen and nutrients to major organs may be deranged due to cytokine-mediated either inappropriate vasodilation or maybe excessive vasoconstriction. Microthrombi can also play a role in leading to organ dysfunction as well as microcirculatory dysfunction. And so when we see two or more organs affected by an underlying inflammatory or infectious disease, we classify that as MODS. And the more organs that fail, the higher the mortality. So we really want to be on top of these patients as soon as possible so that we can initiate early treatment. Now, has anything changed in terms of, I know billions of dollars have been spent on the human side of treating sepsis and looking for different modulators or medications or therapies that could help improve the survival or treatment for sepsis. Anything clinically that we veterinarians can implement that has been discovered in the past few years? That's a great question. And it's the million dollar question, I think, is what can we do for our patients with suspected SIRS or sepsis? to avoid them from kind of tipping over into the realm of MODS and obviously increase mortality. And in people, they have done quite a bit of research into this. And in animals, a little less so, but I think we're getting there. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that early recognition of these patients, keeping your eyes open for animals that may have degree of systemic inflammatory response syndrome and or sepsis, 
those patients with suspected underlying infection, which often is very difficult to determine definitively upon presentation, should probably be treated as though they're septic until proven otherwise. And usually what this means is one, rapid stabilization, and two, trying to find the source of the inflammation or infection so you can treat it appropriately as soon as possible. And by early treatment, in people. This has been defined as early goal-directed therapy. There have been a couple studies in animals with pyometra and other infectious diseases looking at whether or not treatment of these animals with goals in mind for maximizing oxygen delivery to the tissues helps increase survival. And so far in people as well as humans, it does seem as though that's the case. There's been some controversial studies in people lately maybe saying that, you know, it doesn't have to be that fast and nobody's really definitively proven that one hour or four hours or six hours is the golden period for normalizing these patients' cardiovascular instability. But I think in general, the rule of thumb would be sooner is better than later. Using some various markers such as normalization or at least improvement in lactate values trying to increase oxygen delivery to the tissues. If they're anemic, give them hemoglobin in the form of red blood cells. If they're not oxygenating well, making sure that we supplement them with adequate amounts of oxygen. Making sure their blood glucose is within an acceptable range. So if it goes too high, then we know in veterinary and human patients that this can predispose them to secondary infections. If it goes too low or we try to control the glucose too narrowly, that can also lead to problems with hypoglycemia. So generally, we allow them to be in a normal or maybe just slightly above normal range. We know that giving appropriate antibiotics based on the suspected source of the infection is incredibly important. And in people, it's been shown to really change the mortality rates if the right antibiotic is given within the first hour. There's only been a, a small number of studies in veterinary medicine so far and they're small. So I think we really need more data on whether early appropriate antibiotic therapy improves survival. But I think it makes sense to believe that it would be good to implement that therapy. In terms of giving fluids, there's been a lot of recent controversy as to what's the best fluid, which fluids to avoid. And I, I honestly think that the key is just trying to normalize intravascular volume. Not giving too much of any one type of fluid is probably also a good rule of thumb. I think isotonic crystalloids in moderation and preferably using fluids that don't contain high chloride concentrations unless they're hypochloremic is probably a good idea. And synthetic colloids are on the hot plate for their potential to cause acute kidney injury in people as well as other side effects such as changes in coagulation profiles. And we've been using synthetic colloids such as hydroxyethyl starches for many years in veterinary medicine without obvious changes in kidney function in a majority of our patients. In people, they definitely have proven that the incidence of kidney injury and re need for re renal replacement therapy is higher in patients that receive synthetic colloids, especially septic patients. But we are still trying to prove whether or not these fluids are that dangerous in small animals. So for now, for animals that really need the oncotic pressure, maybe can't afford the cost of either natural blood products or plasma, or maybe aren't quite candidates for something uh, as aggressive as human or canine albumin therapy, synthetic colloids do serve a role. In terms of 
those patients that we are able to restore intravascular volume but remain hypotensive, we know that prolonged hypotension is going to lead to ischemia and organ dysfunction. So then we need to start reaching for vasopressors. And there has been some controversy in recent years as to what's the best vasopressor. In people, they've recently decided that norepinephrine is the first choice. And dopamine is much further down on the list because of its increased risk of arrhythmias in people. We still don't know that in small animals. We haven't proven that one of the two drugs is superior, but I think one presser would be better than no presser in animals that are intravascularly volume loaded but remain hypotensive based on mean arterial pressures much less than about 70. Which presser to use I think is, is still up for debate. We often will also use vasopressin in animals that are not responding adequately to a single agent of catecholamine presser therapy. Um, so maybe a patient receiving norepinephrine, we get to doses where we feel as though we're causing massive vasoconstriction, still not seeing an adequate response in blood pressure. We may reach for a very low dose infusion of vasopressin. Animals that don't respond to catecholamines are sometimes referred to as catecholamine refractory. And these patients are sometimes considered to be candidates for steroid replacement as well. And this is something we've discovered in recent years. Regardless of the terms that have been used, right now it's a corticosteroid insufficiency-related critical illness, which is abbreviated CIRCI. And we found that physiologic doses of steroids can sometimes help to restore vascular tone. In terms of nutrition, we've also recently found that early nutritional supplementation is beneficial for patients suffering from sepsis or SIRS. Enteral is always preferable to parenteral, but if they have severe refractory vomiting, then we do go ahead and use parenteral nutrition in the short term. Sometimes patients who are recumbent or don't have an adequate gag reflex will also be candidates for parenteral nutrition. But again, if we can place any type of feeding to, whether it be a nasoesophageal, nasogastric, or more invasive type of feeding tube, then that's only going to help with intestinal uh, epithelial integrity and decrease the incidence of bacterial translocation and worsening of the inflammatory response and underlying infectious incidents in those patients. So more recently, we, we also have found that the microcirculation, as I mentioned, may play a role in some patients with organ dysfunction. I don't think we yet know exactly how to treat the microcirculation because it's still such a hard organ to clinically appreciate when it's deranged. But I think that's probably more in the future. For now, we have a few additional toys that veterinarians have played with in some of the more advanced ICU settings, such as central venous oxygen saturation as, again, another marker for our goal-directed therapy. Some people are using thoracic scans, such as looking at the left atrium to aortic ratio to try to assess intravascular volume resuscitation, and other techniques that might assist in assessing patients that are severely affected by their sepsis. But I think the bottom line is really early recognition, rapid source control, and treatment to maximize oxygen delivery are the tenets of therapy. The other things I mentioned are really just in process of being studied and changes have been made in the human and veterinary literature to suggest that 
maybe we don't do what we did 20 years ago. Wow, great information. I have a bunch of questions that I wanted to stem off of that. The first one that you mentioned on early recognition and rapid stabilization and, and River's original paper in 2001 on early goal-directed therapy and the use of more aggressive fluids and potentially pressors. How does a veterinarian, if they don't have the ability, if say they don't have a central line in that patient, um, they can't do CBPs, any clues on them being able to assess how uh, the intravascular volume is, how full it is? That's a hard question. It really is. I think that for a lot of veterinarians, it's going to be repeated physical exams, measuring blood pressure, looking at the mucous membranes, looking at the capillary refill time and feeling those pulses for how strong they are. Also looking at extremity temperature. So do they feel really vasoconstricted and cold or are they the more classic SIRS patient that is very vasodilated and febrile. So I think it can be difficult to definitively ascertain intravascular volume, but I do think it's a good idea to try a fluid challenge in these patients. Maybe if you're using a crystalloid, try 10 mils per kilo and see if their vital parameters and other measurements of perfusion improve. For some patients, that might be that their capillary membrane color and refill time improve. For others, it might be a dog that's tachycardic may get normalization of heart rate. In terms of blood work, we often also look at their lactate levels and their degree of metabolic acidosis as a marker of hypoperfusion and the need for anaerobic energy production. So if vets are able to measure these on a benchtop analyzer, or at the very least have a lactate meter in their practice, which is not very expensive considering how much you might use it, especially if these vets are seeing a lot of more unstable or emergent patients. That can be used as for serial assessments before resuscitation, after resuscitation, and, and throughout hospitalization. I also mentioned the left atrium to aortic ratio, which I realize is not something many vets are are using at this point in time, but if you have an ultrasound, it is something that can be easily learned. It's a skill that I think once you learn where to put the probe on the chest and how to get the proper orientation, it's a very quick and easy measurement that can be done to try and avoid left-sided heart failure from overzealous resuscitation. With regards to not having the other fancy toys, I think there's just one other measurement that can sometimes be useful, and that's looking at the peripheral, or if you get a a central stick, looking at that oxygen saturation as well. If it's a central, even jugular catheter, or you do a blood stick on a jugular vein, then the saturation of that blood, if run through a machine, should generally be above 65 to 70%. If you don't have those values or you're using an analyzer that just gives you a partial pressure value for the venous oxygen, then we also know that a normal venous O2 should be greater than 40 and usually less than 60. If the partial pressure of oxygen in the venous circulation is much lower than 30 to 40 or higher than 60, that could indicate additional derangements in perfusion or oxygen utilization. So there are just some other maybe less invasive or less expensive ways to try and assess a patient's intravascular volume or resuscitation points. I think if it is possible to place central lines in some of the sicker patients, that 
obviously can be useful for CVP, although trends may be more helpful than single values. I think we have learned that from a lot of the, the studies that have been done. And maybe just reassessing where their PCV and solids are going and try to uh, approximate where your endpoint is with resuscitation with a crystalloid or synthetic colloid. If they come in with a PCV of 30 and they're severely dehydrated, that could tell you that, you know what, I might need to think about blood in the near future as well, because after I give them 10, 20, maybe 30 mils per kilo of a crystalloid, that PCV is probably going to be 20 or less. So just thinking ahead of the patient in terms of needs, maybe getting that blood type across match sooner than later. Great information. Do you have a time cutoff? So say we volume resuscitated this patient for six to 12 hours. We, based on our best judgment on physical exam and urine output and blood pressure and PCV total solids, we think the intravascular volume is full, uh, but our patient is still hypotensive. Do you have a certain cutoff when you don't reach for vasopressors, like before six hours? or Because I always worry people are squeezing empty vessels with a vasopressor. Um, so I didn't know if you had some general guidelines on when it's too early to reach. Obviously, we, we don't want our patients persistently hypotensive, but um, mm -hmm. some general guidelines? Right. You know, I don't think we have definitive evidence in the veterinary literature, but again, in people, they rarely will wait more than four to six hours before starting vasopressors in patients that are believed to be volume resuscitated. I do agree that, again, you don't want to squeeze a tomato um, for to try and get blood. I think what we want to do is take especially patients that appear peripherally vasoconstricted. So cold extremities, cold ears, pale mucous membranes, those are probably not the patients that will benefit from uh, vasopressor therapy because they are responding to the need to to squeeze the vessels and increase tone. Typically, it's it's the ones that are very vasodilated and have gotten an adequate amount of volume for your initial assessment. So let's say that we think that 30 or 40 mils per kilo in a dog, um, that's a good half of their blood volume, is given to a patient that is assessed to be um, X percent dehydrated. And let's say we calculate out how much we think they need based on their initial assessment. Let's do another assessment after we've given them one, two, or maybe three boluses of crystalloids or synthetic colloids and see if anything has changed. Has their heart rate decreased? Has their pulse quality improved? And I think there's there's not a magic point where we can say, okay, we filled up those vessels. People have a little bit easier time. I think they can do passive leg raises and other assessments of cable diameter. We're not quite there yet. So I think it's really a clinical judgment, a clinical interpretation that should probably be over the first two to four hours of resuscitation. If it's a very dynamic patient or one that might have ongoing bleeding, then it's we may need to reach for a presser earlier, but most of the literature in people has shown that early fluid resuscitation is more likely to be beneficial and not detrimental if given early, like within the first four to six hours. If you wait until like 12, 24 hours and then say, oh, maybe I should give another couple of boluses, that's when we tend to get more interstitial edema and organ failure. So I would suggest trying to use your clinical judgment, your lactate, heart rate and, and other parameters to do your best to give a, 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 if it's possible to say, a judiciously aggressive amount of volume resuscitation, which I think in dogs doesn't have to be 90 mils per kilo within 15 minutes, 
but rather 10 to 20 mils per kilo with reassessment at, after each bolus. And if you feel like you're not really getting much change with a bolus, then you might have reached your endpoint in terms of volume, at which point you might consider to keeping them on an infusion of fluids, but probably not continued boluses. If they remain hypotensive, then I would reach for a presser at that point. Great info. I just have two or three more questions. And, you know, I, I will fully disclose I trained at Penn under Deb. So um, <laughs> I used to use a lot of colloids and I actually still use a lot of colloids. And so when that FDA warning came out about acute kidney injury in humans, I know a lot of criticalists um, started becoming more conservative with the use of colloids just because they're, they're worried about that underlying acute kidney injury. So yeah. Knowing that we often will reach for a colloid in that patient, and depending on where you are, it's just cost prohibitive to, for me to use plasma um, to increase my albumin in, in some of my larger dogs at the clinic I work at. What are your general guidelines for when you would reach for that colloid? Do you have a cutoff for you know total solids less than five or when they're starting to gain too much weight or when they're persistently mm -hmm. hypotensive? Any uh, general tidbits you could leave us with? Sure. Yeah, I think that the isotonic crystalloids often can only go so far, and since they do redistribute about 75% of volume into the interstitium, there's always that concern that we're going to cause interstitial edema, especially in organs we can't see, which is just going to make it harder for oxygen and nutrients to get to the cells. So we do want to avoid giving too much crystalloids. I think the general rule of thumb might be to give somewhere around two, maybe three crystalloid boluses of around 10, 15 mils per kilo of crystalloids. If a patient is really unstable, occasionally we'll go with 20 mils per kilo at a time, but that's rare. I think typically we want to be able to reassess them after smaller volumes. And if we're either seeing a patient that has improvement in all of their physical exam parameters and blood pressure initially, but then it rapidly deteriorates over the ensuing 20 or 30 minutes, those patients just may not be able to keep the crystalloids in their vessels the way that they might be able to with a colloid. So patients who either have initial responses to crystalloids, but then it wanes, or those that start with a severe hypoproteinemia that is thought to be acute in nature might also benefit from earlier colloid resuscitation. And I, I fully appreciate the concern regarding acute kidney injury. I think the osmotic nephrosis is real in people, and there may be some degree of it that happens in animals, and there's, there's a few studies that are currently investigating that, so hopefully very soon we'll have more information. But at this point in time, I agree. We can't always afford to resuscitate with plasma. It's not a benign fluid either because uh, they still can still have activation of their immune system and excessive clotting factor administration with plasma. And the albumin products can be quite expensive and antigenic as well. So we still use synthetic colloids. Um, we typically will use them in these patients that are not responding adequately to crystalloids or are severely hypoproteinemic of an acute nature on presentation and give them usually five, maybe up to 10 mil per kilo incremental boluses and see if we can get a more predictable and sustained effect. Just to be fair, I think that another combination that's often used with synthetic colloids is the use of hypertonic saline synthetic colloid or what is sometimes referred to as turbo starch which helps not only to pull fluid into the vascular space from the osmotic gradient of the hypertonic saline, but also the, the hyper-oncotic 
pull from the synthetic colloid that helps to keep some of that fluid in the vascular space for a longer period of time. In recent years, there's been more and more interest in hypertonic saline as a resuscitative fluid because it not only helps to pull water into the vascular space or interstitial fluid in the vascular space, but it can also help with cardiac output by affecting positive inotropic properties of the heart, causing some very mild vasodilation in animals that might be severely vasoconstricted, and even having an immunomodulatory role that can help in patients with SIRS or sepsis. Right. Do you have a favorite calculation that you use for using turbostarch or making it? Well, I think there's a classic kind of one to two ratio that's commonly used depending on the size of the patient. Here they like to use 43 mils of the synthetic colloid combined with 17 mils of hypertonic saline. The idea is that there's there's a 23.4% stock solution that you can buy in a bottle. And then the goal is to dilute that down by about two-thirds so that you have more like a seven or seven and a half percent dilution. So for any size patient, you can just figure out how much of the synthetic colloid would I need to add to the hypertonic saline to get it from a 23% solution down to about a 7% solution. So usually it's around a, a one, one part hypertonic saline to two part synthetic colloid combination. Perfect. Thank we you We deliver so that, I'm sorry, over about generally five to 10 minutes not too fast because the hypertonic saline shouldn't go more than about a mil per kilo per minute. Why? What will happen? They can actually get some bronchoconstriction, arrhythmias, or even a bradycardia, and it can decrease flow to various organs. Perfect. All right. And the last golden question, steroids. When I was in vet school, all the textbooks for emergency critical care 20 years ago said, you know, give DEX SP four to six mg per kg for that trauma patient or for that septic patient. And then we circled around and said no steroids. And now we're saying yes, steroids. And I think the important thing is the di- huge difference in dose. Do you mind mm-hmm. just explaining A, what dose you would use or what you define as physiologic for DEX SP or PRED? And two, when do you reach for that steroid? Of course, you know, I do believe no animal should die without the benefit of steroids, but when should we reach for it? Well, the the patients that might benefit from steroids, and again, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in this arena because I think the the period of no steroids stemmed from the fact that the risks sometimes do outweigh the benefits, primarily the risks of gastrointestinal ulceration and immunosuppression. But that's why when we select patients with SIRS or sepsis, we're looking at patients that are volume resuscitated, are getting catecholamine therapy, and are still not coming around. We're not able to get their blood pressure up. We're not able to get their lactate down. Their cardiovascular system is still very unstable. And these are patients that we say, I wonder if they might have a deficiency in steroids. We can do ACTH stims. We can measure baseline cortisols. But the truth is every patient is a little different. And probably the delta cortisol is more of an indicator than any other test as to whether they need steroids, but we often don't want to wait for the results of these tests. So typically what we do is we give them no more than a physiologic dose of steroids, which is much smaller than the amount previously recommended back in the day. If, if we're using DEXSP, which is still considered to be acceptable, then we typically will go with around 0.05 mg per kg. At 0.05 milligrams per kilogram, IVQ24. 
if it's prednisone, then we can use five times that dose, either divided BID or given as a single dose. It, it may not last the full 24 hours, so sometimes we will divide it BID. Hydrocortisone in people is considered to be the most physiologic of all. It, it really is the most physiologic steroid of all. And in humans, they give equivalent physiologic doses, which would again be five times the PRED dose, given either every eight hours or sometimes they'll divide it into an hourly infusion, which I realize is not practical for all practices and, and uh, nursing units, but it occasionally we'll use hydrocortisone as a Q8 dosing regime at a physiologic dose. Awesome. Fantastic information on the patient with SIRS, sepsis, or septic shock. Dr. Silverstein, thank you so much for spending the time to go over this podcast, and we really appreciate all your knowledge and wisdom. Well, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. And if anyone ever has questions, they can always email or call. And I'm happy to talk about SIRS, mod, sepsis, or other topics. Thank you so much. <laughs>